0: Wherever you're listening to this sermon, I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 4. We begin this chapter last week with a very unexpected encounter between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at a well. There are multiple reasons why Jesus shouldn't have talked to this woman, yet we find him crossing all the cultural barriers of his day to engage her in conversation. And he tells her of living water that never runs out and in fact wells up to eternal life. And then we find for the first time in the Gospel of John, Jesus clearly telling someone that he is the Messiah. And of all people, he plainly reveals his identity to this woman. He didn't announce his identity on the front steps of the temple. He didn't announce it before the high priests or before the Roman governors. Instead, the greatest revelation known to humanity comes to this broken, immoral woman. It's unexpected. It's strange. It's strange. But at the same time, it's so like Jesus to pursue those who were hurting the most and engage with people that needed grace the most. And there's hope for us in that truth today. But the story of this woman isn't quite over. We need to see how she responds to this newfound knowledge. And just a little spoiler alert, her response will change the eternity of a whole town. And in it, we'll also find a model for our own lives from this unexpected evangelist. So we'll pick back up where we left off last week in verse 27. And in John four twenty-seven it says this. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So Jesus' disciples had been in the town getting some food during this whole conversation, and they now return, and it says they marveled that he was talking with a woman. They were shocked to find Jesus talking with this Samaritan woman. Remember, none of these words are here by accident. The writer John is drawing attention to the fact that Jesus does this, and even the disciples at the time didn't really know what to think about it. We see that Jesus isn't captive to the blatant sexism of his day. It was a custom that a rabbi or respected teacher shouldn't talk to a woman, sometimes even his own wife in public. But Jesus breaks right through that gender barrier. And this isn't even a one-off event. Women play a significant role in Jesus's ministry in the gospels. From this early encounter to The close friendship with Mary and Martha to the association with Mary Magdalene and the fact that it's a group of women that are the very first to find the tomb empty and receive the angel's message that he's alive. Jesus values and respects and honors women, and Jesus' church should do the same. But for whatever reason, the, the disciples, they don't question him, even though they certainly had questions in their mind. And at this point, we see how the woman responds To Jesus' identity as Messiah. She abruptly leaves and goes back into the town, telling people to come see this man who told her everything she ever did. Could this guy be the Messiah? And notice two things about the way she responds to this revelation. She is both urgent and confident. There seems to be a sense of urgency by the fact that she leaves her jar. (laughs) She came in the middle of the day for one purpose, to get water, but after this conversation, She doesn't get water. She drops everything and goes into the town to tell others what she's experienced. She came to get normal water, but was introduced to living water and now immediately is thinking about introducing others to this same source of living water. What a response. And it forces us to ask if we do the same. What have we done with the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the savior of the world? The Samaritan woman had a sense of urgency that others needed to know. She had just found life, but she didn't keep it to herself. She didn't hoard this truth. She knew this was something everyone needed. And there's danger in our highly individualized culture of looking at a relationship with God as something private, just between us and Jesus. And for lack of a better phrase, we can kind of grow fat and happy in our spirituality. We can focus on God's love and grace and goodness to us, but fail to remember that there's a world around us that's dying and blind to the gospel. Instead, we should always live with this sense of gospel urgency, knowing that we've been given a mission that will continue our entire lives. Pastor Robbie Gallaty, he likes to say, the gospel came to you because it was going to someone else. The gospel came to you because it was going to someone else. We only know the gospel because someone introduced us to it. And others need that same introduction. If the gospel ends with you, then you have failed as a disciple of Christ. It must carry on. And this Samaritan woman, she immediately felt the need to share this good news with others. It changed her priorities completely around. So she was urgent, but she was also confident. She went into the town to tell the people. Now remember who this woman was. She had had five husbands and was now living with someone who wasn't her husband. She was getting water alone at the hottest point of the day, suggesting that she wasn't accepted among the other women. Her immorality was known to everyone in the town. She was perhaps despised and disgraced. So what confidence must she have to go straight back to those people and deliver this news? What would drive someone to set aside all their shame and baggage and go directly to the people who know her reputation? She had just encountered, had an encounter that cut straight to her deepest need and was so affected by the revelation she received that she didn't care who it was or what they thought about her. She had good news to share. And may it be the same for us. May we have that kind of confidence sharing the good news that we found. Where we call others to come and meet this Savior, we found and experienced that life and forgiveness and grace that He offers. There's so much we could learn from this woman's urgency and confidence in her message. Now, in verse 31, we find this brief conversation that occurs between Jesus and His disciples right after the woman leaves. It says in verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples are urging Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering the fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For there the saying holds true one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So the disciples have returned with food and they're telling Jesus to eat, urging him to nourish himself after the long journey that they've made. But Jesus tells them he has food that they don't know about. Of course, they're surprised and a bit confused. It's almost humorous Then wondering if someone else brought him food. Did Jesus pack some snacks he didn't tell them about? Has he been holding out on them the whole time? But they're missing the spiritual depth of his words. Just like Jesus telling Nicodemus about being born again and him responding, how can I return to my mother's womb? The disciples are taking it literally. Just like the woman initially didn't understand what living water was and says, how, how can you give me this water? You don't even have a bucket. Now even Jesus' own disciples aren't understanding this food that he's talking about. They're missing the spiritual reality that he's trying to introduce them to. So Jesus explains that his food is to do the will of him who sent him, that is God the Father. This continues the theme we saw in chapter 2 of Jesus having his eyes set directly on accomplishing the will of God the Father. Food is important. It's our main source of nutrients and nourishment. Food is our source of life. Without it, we'll eventually die. But Jesus purposefully chooses the word food to emphasize that what brings him true life and nourishment, what feeds his being, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus so perfectly obeyed the Father. He perfectly followed his will. In everything he did, Jesus glorified God. It brings nourishment and life to his soul. And we don't have to wonder what the will and work of the Father is. Of course, it culminates with Jesus going to the cross where he declares it is finished. But right here in this context, we already know that the work of the Father and the will of the Father is that people would be saved. He says he has food they don't know about because he has just been accomplishing the will of the Father by giving living water to the Samaritan woman. What did John 3.17 tell us a few weeks ago? For Christ came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. He came on a rescue mission to save sinners like me and you. In doing so, accomplishing the will of the Father was like food. It was like a source of life to Jesus. And could the same be true about you and me? I know so often I'm tempted to think that what's food for me, what really makes my life better Is to do what I want to do or for life to go my way. And this is a perfect time to be raising this question because with the current virus situation and our lives being disrupted in an unprecedented way, almost all of us are being forced to rethink our daily routines and how we spend our time. For some of us, it's been a great change, but for many others, it's probably thrown you off quite a bit and maybe has exposed areas of your life to you that you didn't know you put so much identity or value in. Or areas that you're placing a little too much of your happiness in. And when things are suddenly taken away, it can help reveal where our values and priorities actually lie. And maybe you find you're placing too much value in being able to go to work or school or the gym or the movies or just to sit in your favorite restaurant or go to the beach or even grocery shopping, and be able to buy as much of anything you want that you can. It can help us do some soul searching. And I know this is difficult. This isn't easy. All those things I mentioned are actually good things, but they aren't ultimate things. We sell ourselves far short of the joy and satisfaction available to us when we try to find it in things of this world. The truth is there is a feast of obedience available to us every second of the day. More life and joy can be found in simple obedience to God than you can find in all the riches and pleasures of the world. It's even possible to go through all the religious motions and routines and still not be satisfied if you aren't pursuing obedience in every area of your life. Christians, as followers of Christ, we should be able to say the same thing as Jesus, that My food is to do the will of him, not who sent me, but the will of him who paid the ultimate price and purchased my freedom and pardon with the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. It should be life to us to glorify God and accomplish his work in the world. That's the mark of a disciple who is day by day taking up his cross and following him. And Jesus expounds on this further, emphasizing that this saving work is not his alone, but also belongs to his followers. It's a work that he invites all of us to take part in. He says, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Scholars think this might have been a local proverb of that time, but the main point is that he contrasts that with the next line. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus is saying, we have work to do. People plan and eagerly await a harvest. But look, the harvest is here. It's right here. The kingdom of God is different. Sometimes the harvest might come in a minute, sometimes longer. And perhaps as he's saying this, the Samaritans are already coming out of the town and coming towards the well. And Jesus is pointing to them saying to his disciples, look, the fields are white for harvest. There's a spiritual harvest ready to happen right now if you just had the eyes to recognize it. He says in verse 36, already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. That fruit is referring to people becoming followers of Jesus. The ultimate fruit of our lives is the privilege of pointing people to salvation in Christ. He tells the disciples in verse 38, I sent you to reap for which you did not labor, Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. The disciples indeed were invited to reap a harvest that many had labored for. In a sense, you could say that there was over a thousand years of labor put into this harvest. Centuries of prophets of God pointing people to the Lord and the hope in a future Messiah. The most recent of those, of course, being John the Baptist, who was preparing the hearts of the Jews to receive him. And in a real way we all get to reap where others have sown and where the Holy Spirit is working on the hearts of men and women. And we as believers are invited into this great work of God of saving men and women. Then now more than ever, can't you hear these words of Jesus still to us today? Look, the fields are white for harvest. There are people desperate for hope and mercy and fulfillment. But just like the Samaritan woman, they're looking to fill that void in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. If we just had the eyes to see, the mindset to recognize that those around us, that God has placed in our paths for us to minister to. And I'm not talking about going door to door, talking to people you've never met. I'm talking about the people you see on a daily basis or a weekly basis that you have some type of relationship with that you know are not following Jesus, That's your mission field. And there's no greater time than in our current cultural moment than to make sure the church of Jesus Christ is awake and has eyes wide open to recognize the fields are white for harvest. We have the opportunity and even the responsibility right now to be beacons of light and life and hope in a world of confusion, anxiety, and fear. We know the source of living water. We know the ultimate source of life and peace and grace and mercy, Jesus Christ. And how fitting right now is the command we find in 1 Peter 3.15. The Peter says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We have a different hope. Our hope is different than the world, both in good times and in bad times. May we live lives right now that forces people to ask us, that question, like, why are you so hopeful? Why aren't you afraid or worried? May the words of Jesus and his name be constantly on our lips. And if you think you aren't qualified to take part in this work, or you think God couldn't use you, or you don't have the words or training to reach others for Christ, then just wait and see how this story ends in verse 39. Here's what it says. What kind of person does God require to be a witness for him? What kind of person does God need? Anyone. Look at that first line of verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And what was her testimony? Simply come and see a man who told me all I ever did. I think this is the Christ. You don't have to be Billy Graham to point people to Jesus. A whole town of Samaritans came... To believe in Jesus based off the simple testimony of this woman. Does she have any qualifications? Not at all. Instead, she actually had many qualities that you would think would disqualify her. The only qualification she had was the only one she needed, and that was an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Her testimony was simple, but it's what she had experienced with Jesus. And that's the same for you and me. You don't need a position. You don't need a title. You don't need a degree or training. Your testimony is simply telling someone what God has done in your life. And though men like Billy Graham and others have made great impacts in the world, the truth is the Church of Jesus Christ has survived and thrived for nearly 2,000 years based not on the rhetorical skills of a few, but on the simple testimonies of millions and millions of faithful believers who have shared with others what God has done in their lives. You don't have to be able to win an argument or have a really persuasive presentation memorized. The Bible doesn't command us to argue people into heaven, persuade them into salvation, or coerce them into belief. The command is to proclaim the gospel, to tell people the good news of what Jesus has done. And the most effective way to do that is by sharing what God has done in your life and is still doing in your life. That's your testimony. It's not just what he did when he saved you 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago, but what he's still doing in your life today. The moment of initial belief was just the beginning. The truth and wonder of the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ in your life should grow every day so that you love him more and need him more now, 20 years later, than you did at the moment you were saved. My former pastor, Mark Bird, he likes to call that a up-to-the-minute testimony. If all you can point to Is something that happened years ago, then you're really robbing God of all the glory He deserves for the years of continuing to show you mercy and grace and sustaining you spiritually. It's like telling someone how amazing your marriage with your spouse is by pointing to your wedding day that happened years ago, saying, Marriage is awesome. Here's the proof. We had this amazing day 20 years ago. There's no power in that. There's no hope in that. Instead, you would tell them that marriage is awesome and here's how. It affects my life today, right now. And with our testimony, we're sharing with someone what God is doing in our life and inviting them to experience that same thing. Just like the Samaritan woman invited the town saying, come and see this man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And the result of her testimony is incredible. The Samaritans came to Jesus and asked him to stay with them. And he did for two days. And many more believed. And then they actually confirmed the woman's initial testimony by telling her, hey, we first believed based on what you said, but now we believe because we've experienced it firsthand. And we know that this truly is the Savior of the world. What an incredible declaration coming from these Samaritans. Jesus isn't just the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of the world. And that is evidenced by salvation coming even to these Samaritans. This is a precursor to the command that Jesus gives to disciples in Acts 1.8, that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's a foreshadowing of what's to come. And it's proof of what John told us in the prologue of his book, that the true light came into the world he created and his own did not recognize or receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. The Samaritans. The people despised and looked down on by the Jews were the first non-Jewish people to receive Jesus. And remember, according to the purpose of this book, John recorded this story to show us that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, we would have eternal life. The invitation to living water, to eternal life, is open to all who receive and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And so from this passage, we see both the invitation to receive life and the invitation to join in the work of introducing others to the only source of life. Church, I want us to be challenged to remember and let it work into our hearts this week that there is work to do. The fields are white for harvest if we just had the eyes to recognize where God is at work and we have the privilege and the responsibility of joining in this harvest and seeing souls saved in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.